first central point is that the uh, the Netanyahu era is over. And just to dwell for a moment on the uh, the legacy of the of the former prime minister, um, because as I'm sure that there'll be a kind of such a, a divergent uh, a range of views. Um, probably on this call, but certainly within Israeli society of how they view the, uh, the legacy of the prime minister, obviously the longest serving prime minister in Israel's, in Israel's history. Um, and the irony, of course, you know, by far the, uh, the holder of the largest seats, but wasn't able to form a, to form a government due to really personal, personal issues and, uh, and the issues relating to his trial and also his perhaps man, 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 man management of, uh, of senior staff. Of which so many of whom are now part of this uh, of this new government. But I think in so in terms of reviewing Netanyahu's legacy, there are obviously two broad camps: those that think he will go down as the uh, as the greatest prime minister, perhaps of all time, and for and for these people, they will point to kind of the unprecedented um, economic growth that he has overseen. Um, by the way, he also predates perhaps even his, his prime ministership, but also while he served as finance minister um, during Eric Sharon's uh, government of the early of the early 2000s. But certainly in the last decade, he's been able to captivate and galvanize the Israel's success as startup nation and with so many uh, high, uh, high tech successes and use that as the basis for such economic um, um, uh, pros prosperity in this country. Um, also, relative to the period of uh, the of the ten or eleven years of of his of his um, of his last reign, um, also saw one of the quietest periods overall in Israel's security situations. Um, the least amount of fatalities from from terror attacks, um, aside from three four um, major upticks in in, in uh, violence with uh, with Hamas in Gaza. Overall, oversaw a very uh, a very quiet period, and perhaps kind of uh, also impressively kind of handled the dynamic of the regional change. If one recalls that it was early on in his in, in his tenure, 2010 2011, where where kind of he was facing a, a, a triple uh, threat: one of the of the instability in the region from the Arab Spring. Um, the second was, if you remember, the summer 2011 of the uh, the social uh, social justice protests in Israel, and compounded on that was, at least from his perspective, a, a, an unfriendly democratic uh, administration of Obama's in the White House, and the way that he kind of was able to manage all of all of those, and again, I'm, I'm from the perspective of his his supporters, um, definitely deserves credit, and more recently, um, in the last year, with the, with the bringing of four peace treaties um, together, kind of. Uh, um, dub, well, timesing by two hundred percent the amount of the of Arab countries that are now have formal relations with uh, with Israel, following the Abraham Accords, etc., and the the renewal of relations with uh, with Morocco. By the way, don't want to see themselves as part of the Abraham Accords. Um, the Abraham Accords itself is a terminology that we may see phased out um, with this new government and with the uh, uh, sensitivities towards Biden. But at the moment, it's still uh, it still holds, and for the purpose of our of our calls, we'll still uh, we'll still be using uh, that term. Um, and and primarily, kind of most most recently, his success in, in unprecedentedly bringing uh, bringing the vaccines to Israel as well. I should note that today is a kind of a, a celebration in Israel that it's the first day where they've taken off. All restrictions, including the wearing of face masks, even even in indoor um, crowded areas. So at least, I mean, we should never say never, but it very much feels that the coronavirus and the mask phenomena, etc., is is behind us here in Israel, of which uh, Netanyahu definitely deserves a, a great deal of credit.
so that's all in the uh, in in the in the plus column. Um, on the on, on the negative side, as I as I alluded to already, is kind of the people that uh, that, that have said that it, he allowed everything to get uh, personal management, that he uh, that he was unable to to, uh, to to develop a successor. In fact, everyone that was that was once considered his successor has now turned into a rival. Uh, many of whom. Um, are now sitting in the in, in, in the government and have uh, and have replaced him. Um, so that's certainly an aspect which is uh, which is criticised. Obviously, one can't avoid the fact that he is still on trial for the uh, for uh, in the three charges of, of corruption and bribery, breach of trust, and that's obviously weighing heavily within this uh, political um, stalemate that we had over two years. And largely, again, taking those personal interests aside, it was seen as inappropriate the way that he that he managed those issues. And I'm being, you can hear I'm being deliberately uh, diplomatic because there is a lot of a lot of anger which we've seen on the Israeli streets directed to this uh, to this behavior. Um, and just even on this on the security front as well, there is that there is a substantial criticism that despite his management of the campaign between the wars, uh, nevertheless, he leaves office with Iran in a much, uh, much stronger, stable, a more stable position with regard to their nuclear project and the entrenchment and development of of uh, of, uh, of weaponry and advanced weaponry on Israel's borders, both in uh, in Syria and Lebanon. And also, as we recently saw now in uh, in, in Gaza as well. Um, there is also, which may come back as a political issue, the issue of the uh, of the submarines, which no inquiry has been opened, but the question marks over allowing Israel's qualitative military edge um, to be diminished at the price of Egypt receiving potentially uh, um, exceedingly advanced uh, submarines, and as well as the deal, by the way, within the context of Abraham Accords, to give the uh, the, uh, the the Emirates the uh, the fleet of the F 35s is also kind of still still in question so there's no doubt that uh, that he will kind of remain a controversial figure here um, um perhaps even as it's more clear cut perhaps uh, from from abroad um the second issue i just wanted to kind of say a few a few comments on is just the events specifically of this week um people may have seen what should have been a celebration of israeli democracy um, um uh, what's the, how to say it? Kind of uh, fall very quickly, de de diminish rather rather swiftly by the behaviour of uh, not Netanyahu himself personally, but the people within the uh, the, the, the his his block of uh, of the right wing block. Um, I'm referring to kind of the obscene kind of catcalling and heckling during uh, during uh, um, Prime Minister Bennett's uh, uh, remarks just before the vote. I would also just like to juxtapose that. With, on the same day or an hour or two later, with some more positive scenes that people may or may not have have, have been able to see on uh, on international TV. But when when the new speaker was elected, Mickey Levy, there was a moment which kind of is is more sim, um, symbolic that is that is the prouder side of Israeli society, where members of of the government and the opposition all came together to collectively to congratulate him and if you saw some of the snapshots of the uh, of the of of the hugs and the and the high fives it kind of it spread the whole gamut from the ultra orthodox to the arab parties even those that weren't part of the uh, of the of the coalition and so you can see still the the fabric which knits israeli society together although is kind of has been pulled apart and is at breaking point in some aspects is also quite cohesive and uh, and and united in others and i think it's that dichotomy and that distinction which is always worth bearing in mind when one just takes a a, a freeze frame snapshot 
of Israeli society, that it is, it's got those contradictions um, wo wo woven into it. Um, we've already discussed on previous calls that some of you may, may have heard kind of some of the principles and the government guidelines, and I'm happy to go into that in more details in the, in the questioning. But if one listened to, if one had a chance to listen or to read the subsequent text that uh, Naftali Bennett's uh, office put out that some of the, the English language media has published, um, I would recommend people to have a look at it because the speech that he made there was kind of a very well calibrated and careful speech. He actually spoke about kind of the idea of in Jewish tradition about the uh, the importance of arguments and kind of disagreements amongst the tribe, but uh, but at the same time the the importance to come together and uh, and to not take those disagreements too far. He spoke about kind of in, and what we anticipate will be of this government a very strong domestic agenda investment in the education uh, ministry, kind of from uh, from from kindergarten right through to higher education and investments in the infrastructure on the uh, on Israeli roads, investments in uh, in hospitals, creating two new hospitals, one in the north, one one in the south. Um, and so we get kind of a, a practical idea of where the priorities will be. Um, there was also, I mean, we saw yesterday, the day after, kind of the first full day of the functioning of the new government, all the various ministries um, had a had had a had, had an exchange of the new ministers coming in. Most of them did a ceremonial uh, ceremony. Not all, and uh, there were some kind of particular issues of why why that was. Perhaps most disturbingly is the way that Prime Minister Netanyahu, former Prime Minister Netanyahu, has handed over to Prime Minister Bennett. Their conversation lasted less than than half an hour, the shortest ever transfer over. Um, and it's seen, although Bennett will soon bring in his own people, at least in the short term, he's going to keep the same um, uh, military advisor, secretary, um, and the national security advisor in place just to see him through on those. So there is that form of continuity um, advising the, uh, the, 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 new, the new prime minister, although he's expected to bring in his new set of personnel and staff very soon. Um, there's a whole slew of senior appointments, especially in the in the in the field of, of justice, but also ambassadorial posts that have been left unfilled and across other governments. But there was a one of the other criticisms of the outgoing government was their kind of the the way that they were so stuck and because of the uh, disagreements at the time between the then parity government of Gan Gantz and Netanyahu weren't able to advance any of this. There is certainly hope, expectation that this new government, although based on a similar parity between Lapid and Bennett, will be able to overcome some of these basic criteria of governance um, and be able to install a, a kind of a functioning, uh, a functioning new staff. Um, as I said, I'm happy to, to expand on, on all of those issues and others, but I'll, I'll stop there and, uh, and receive questions. With regard to the, the new coalition, bearing in mind we've got left, middle ground and the um, Arab party, what are the chances of getting anything done? Because we've got all, all ends of the calendar here. So how is it going to work? You're absolutely right. We have the perhaps the most diverse, most, uh, most kind of uh, a, a pluralist, I would even say, government we've ever, ha we've ever had in this country. I think, I mean, the bottom line is, is that they will avoid, they will avoid the, the, the ideologically difficult questions as much as possible. And we've already got an example of the, this afternoon that we can discuss of kind of one of those security issues that will come up and challenge this new government almost immediately, along with a whole slew of issues. But in terms of a proactive agenda, 
there is they are able to find a healthy middle ground to focus on what they what this government will define as the needs of the majority of the population and as i said they they cut across all sectors with regard to uh, to if it's environmental policy or housing policy um or as i've already mentioned education and health and infrastructure all these things are going to be kind of work in the in the national interest and the national interest is obviously a very broad and opaque term but in this sense it's taking away the ideology it's saying kind of what makes sense for the vast majority of people that are that are that are working and tax paying and kind of law law abiding citizens and what they uh, and what they need and deserve um it, i mean you, you you mentioned absolutely the significance which i should have highlighted at the beginning that we've the, the bicom has focused on in the last few months just the unprecedented role that the israeli arab parties are playing in are playing in politics now and it's worth just re-emphasizing because it is so unique and uh, and fascinating that the uh, that uh, mansour abbas the leader of ram the united arab list party is going to be taking up a, a deputy ministership um given according to the coalition agreements around half a billion shekels to spend at his discretion on his own community um and hopefully that people they will they will despite kind of the lack of historic investment although by the way i should add that there was similar amounts put together in the under netanyahu as well and even in even in bennett's um um inaugural speech to the knesset he kind of tongue in cheek thanked netanyahu for legitimizing the role of the israeli arab parties in in politics and that is a, i think that is accurate analysis that i would share as well but as a result of that for the first time ever they are now part of the government and they are going to hopefully be able to bring real dividends of success to their population which in which, which in turn will help the fabric of israeli society and integrate um the israeli arab population closer to the uh, closer to the israeli jews so the broadly think the broad answer is that's the, they're going to be these non-ideological issues someone from the government made a comment as well that they hope to to bore the israeli public uh, because they're just going to get on with the work of kind of normal mundane governance without any bells and whistles and without anything too exciting um we'll wait and see if that uh, if that transpires do you think the new government will lead to a change in israel's international standing um well there 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 i think Let me answer this question in two ways. First of all, again, if you listen to the speech that Yair Lapid made yesterday when he entered the foreign ministry, again, it's in it's 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 been translated. It's well worth well worth reading the the, the text of it. Um, and if people are particularly interested, they can email me after. I can I can share it. Um, but essentially, Lapid says two or three fundamentally important things. First of all, he uh, he he makes the point that first of all, he's widely credited as the architect of this. of this government but he may insist that he he wanted the foreign ministry out of a strategic choice that he wants to influence that discourse between Israel and the international community but there was a lot of criticism that in the past the foreign ministry has been uh, has, has been underfunded and underpowered and uh, and uh, and the other decisions were basically moved to the prime minister's office and so it's an important shift um in terms of the the government management that it's back in a strong for for a ministry which has the appropriate investment to do to make that engagement people also would have noticed for example the ministry of strategic affairs which was basically created a decade ago out of political expediency um although they did some important work has now been closed down and brought back into a a a, a beef a beefed up foreign foreign ministry so i think you can we can expect to change 
practically in the in the in the emphasis and the sophistication and the quality that is that it, that, it, that is dealt there. Um, and kind of and, and he's already spoken about the importance of a whole range of of uh, Israel's international relations. First and foremost, with the uh, with the U.S., which is going to be seen as especially under a Democratic Biden. Um, um, administration as being far more important that both Bennett and Lapid have that engagement on a meaningful level with the US. They've talked about expanding the, the Abraham Accords, kind of reaching out, both both deepening them and expanding out to uh, to other Israeli, uh, uh, sorry, other other Arab states as well that have the potential to be brought into the, to Israel's sphere of influence. And again, he's spoken to a range of, uh, of European leaders, um, we, we, we know that he's got good relations with the with senior figures within the British government. Um, and so across the board, there is expected to be a reset of relations and uh, and, and a re uh, re-emphasis on, on the on the importance of the uh, of the messaging that the Israeli government can deliver in a successful manner. There's been so much talk about Israel's relationship with the right in America and with evangelical Christians, with Ron Derma, former ambassador, saying, oh, Israel should focus on evangelical Christians now, um, not on American Jews. Some of um, Netanyahu's evangelicals actually shocking the rest of us by making some pretty horrible remarks about the new government. On the other hand, you've got other people, uh, you've got some people saying this is a brilliant idea. Netanyahu was great with the evangelicals, we need that. Other people going, oh, no, 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 it was awful. It was terrible. Um, how much of this is scaremongering by people in both camps, those who can't stand being criticised and think the evangelicals were great, and those who can't stand them and think they were awful? Um, will this government really change it that much? Are we, are we looking at real problems with the right now that Bibi's not around anymore, or at least not prime minister, as some people are insisting, or is that just scaremongering? In terms of the evangelicals, this is something also that uh, that Lapid related to as well, because the way he framed it is that, you know, he was appreciative of, of any support that Israel gets and kind of wanted to acknowledge the, 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 the US right, but said that there is a qualitative difference between American Jews and made a point of saying reform, conservative, orthodox, because we're family. And so family comes first. And I think that's an interesting kind of reframing of the issue as opposed to the outgoing government that perhaps couldn't believe their luck that they had kind of right-wing non-Jewish Americans with uh, with political clout backing them and, and ran and ran with that all the all the way, but also it could be argued led to the uh, to the lack of uh, the split of bipartisan support within the U.S., which is seen as kind of historically a critical issue for for for, for Israel. So I think there is going to be a uh, a, a reframing of it, and uh, said, but Lapid recognizes that. And by the way. They've made some excellent appointments. I mean, they've made some excellent appointments overall, but that's a, a personal opinion. But there's also something where a feature of the old government, where people were perhaps um, chosen for political reasons um, as trade-offs, as, as, making, as making deals, not necessarily to the ministry that they were most appropriate to. And by the way, even in extreme examples, people were given deliberate ministries that they didn't want, but couldn't refuse as a, as a purpose of, uh, of political divide and rule. Here in this government so far, we've seen an example of people with the appropriate qualifications, backgrounds, requisite skill sets being given the ministries. And I think a good example of that is in the Ministry for Diaspora Affairs, where Nachman Shai, who didn't actually make it in on the Labour list, 
but instead of uh, instead of bumping people off and bringing new ones in, according to the Norwegian law, which has been done by some parties, they've uh, they've kind of given him a a, a promotion and made Nachman Shai the, the the minister who has a kind of a strong background in and a deep understanding, especially of Israel-U.S. relations and uh, the Jew the U.S. community. But I think broader speaking, in terms of the the wider diaspora as well, um, and and certainly if you if you look at the appointment of uh, of uh, Yitzhak Herzog as the president as well, who obviously comes from a background um, of the Jewish agency and general kind of uh, really strong connections with the Israel diaspora. There are lots of senior Israelis now that really understand and want to make want to make every effort to, to re-engage with all parts of, uh, of, of the diaspora and make that perhaps the, uh, the priority relationship. Lovely, thank you very much. I have a question here about um, electoral process and whether the coalition is capable of reforming the electoral process for it. I don't know what's the sense in Israel about, you know, four elections in two years. Do Israelis think it needs reforming? Um, if so, do you think this, this government will want to do it? Well, when it comes to electoral reform, you know, there, 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 I think there is a disconnect between how Friends of Israel's and Israeli observers from abroad view this and how the, how the Israelis assess this. Um, and by the way, I should perhaps kind of also challenge some of the um, some of the issues that are, that are that are revolving around this space. The idea that's unprecedented. You have a prime minister with with six seats in the Knesset um, representing, uh, you know, representing 10 percent of the uh, of a 60, 60 seat government um, is, is, an, is unprecedented even in Israeli terms. However, the system does allow for that because the, the name gives it away. We are in a, 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 um, a parliamentary democracy. And therefore, every Israeli government is built in coalitions. This one seems to be just kind of particularly unique and, and extreme in the sense of its, uh, of its variety and then the, 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 uh, the cobbling together of small parties. But all of that is testament to the fact that these eight parties with huge divergent different audiences and sectors that they represent are able to, uh, are able to come together and, and form an agreement, which is, I think, to all of their, to all of their credit. Um, but in the specific issue of electoral reform, the only um, reform that is anticipated and which has been put down in the government guidelines is to put a term limit of eight years or two terms, whichever is, is the longer, for a sitting prime minister. And obviously that's learning the, uh, the, the lessons perhaps of this, of this latest phenomena of, uh, of former prime minister Netanyahu to be able to, to have a, an exit point for a prime minister. Well, there's also been speculation, and we don't know yet because the, the bill hasn't yet been uh, been presented. And I, my assessment is that this won't be included. But there is some some quarters want to include an extra provision that uh, that once a prime minister has served his eight years or her eight years, um, that they are then given a cooling off period and not allowed to serve for a further four years. Now that's seen as a particular um, focus to obviously not allow. The current leader of the opposition, Benjamin Netanyahu, to, to, to run again. So it remains to be seen whether that will actually make it through to the text of the bill. Um, some people are concerned that that is too much of a restriction on pure democracy, and so it won't be put through. My sense is that they may well they, they may well win out, and so that clause is unlikely to make it. But that's basically where people are are talking in terms of electoral reform. Will the current Israeli ambassador to the UK be replaced? So perhaps you can just talk about when there's a change of government, how that works with ambassadors. Is there precedent to keep it on or is there precedent to change when the new government comes in? 
I mean, the, the short answer is that she has security of tenure and that she can remain and stay and fulfill her role only in the in, in kind of an extreme circumstance where she was to be uh, to, to resign or, 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 or be or be fired. But I don't I, I don't anticipate that uh, that being the case. Um, having said that, there is discussion about whether um, Gilad Eldan, who for the first time since Abba, Abba Eban holds both roles as, as Israel's ambassador to the US in Washington and Israel's ambassador to the UN in New York. And, and that question has been just in terms of functionality and uh, the appropriateness, the necessity of the same person holding both those jobs, whether that may be that may be reviewed. And obviously, again, within the background of that, as in the case of Tibi Khotovelli and and uh, and Gilad Erdan, they are both members of the of the Likud party. They were both. I mean, if we're crude about it, were given those important ambassadorial jobs as a trade off because they didn't then have to take up a ministerial portfolio, which gave um, former Prime Minister Netanyahu more political space to to satisfy his own uh, his own constituency in inside the Likud leadership. Um, so it's a question mark whether, whether I think moreover Eldan, whether he continue to serve as that conduit for this government. Um, and it may well be the case. I mean, this is, I think, uh, I, I think, I think on personal terms, Bennett and Eldan um, have, a, have, a, have a good working relationship. Um, certainly Eldan in the past has been close to people like Gidon Saar. Um, so again, it will be partly their choice, but they won't be they won't be removed forcefully. But it will be at the government's discretion of exactly uh, how to uh, how to move on going forward. How much power does Benjamin Netanyahu have as a leader of the opposition? Because I know in the UK the Labour leader doesn't have much power at the moment. So is it the same in Israel? Well, it's uh, I mean he has there are there, Israel doesn't have a written constitution, but there are conventions which are established. Within the uh, within the framework of relations between government and opposition, and so for example, he is entitled to a weekly consultation with the uh, with 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 the prime minister, which will be a fascinating uh, to be a fly on the wall in those in 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 those meetings. And kind of he's he's always kind of at set events in the Knesset protocol will always suggest that the uh, that the uh, head of opposition will be the first one with a right of reply to the government in a similar convention, I suppose, to the into the to the UK setting. And similar when there are visiting uh, visiting uh, heads of state and and diplomatic missions, it's often as a courtesy, although not always. Again, this is a convention that it would include a, a a meeting with the uh, with the head of the opposition as well. So it's those kind of those kind of roles that he can be uh, he can expect to to fulfil. Um, just to preempt any other questions, because it is an open question of how long Netanyahu will will decide to be uh, head of the opposition and what's happening kind of right now inside the Likud. Um, just, I mean, just to, to put it into into a broader context, the Likud had 17 ministers in this last government, um, the, the outgoing one. They have now been reduced to having three chairmanships of three Knesset uh, committees. And they're not even very important Knesset committees. There's one on science. There's one on uh, on on economy, and the third one is yet to be yet to be decided. Um, so there's an incredible um, uh, power surge, or the opposite of a of a, of a of a vacuum there in the Likud about what these people with who had such high opinions of themselves while serving as ministers over for over a decade, some of them have now been reduced to, to backbenchers with, uh, without any, any uh, executive function at all. And within that context, there is also um, 
pressure on Netanyahu to resign, that it was understood. I mean, it's incredible if you think about the formation of this government, that in the last, in, in the last hours of Netanyahu having the mandate, his, his kind of his Hail Mary was to pitch a rotation deal between Gidon Saar and himself and Naftali Bennett in an effort to form a right-wing government. And at no point did he even consider stepping aside for someone else from his own party, which could have effectively allowed the formation of a right-wing government. Bear in mind that the right-wing parties do have a, a, a comfortable majority of 66, 67 seats in the current Knesset. Had a differently could leader taken over, then, then, then Saar and Bennett wouldn't have had the same ammunition and, and arguments to say, we, we promise not under Netanyahu. But for obviously personal and political reasons, Netanyahu wasn't, wasn't prepared to do that. And so now he's facing um, some, uh, some rebellion within his own, within his own party. Um, what's interesting is that his response to that is actually to speed up the process of calling a Likud primary, that he wants to call a, a snap primary where he will again stand and everyone will be fearful to stand against him because all these would-be contenders to the throne have all declared that they will not run against Netanyahu. They will wait for him to, uh, to, to step down, to resign. And then in the day after, there are three, four, five different uh, Likud candidates that see themselves as the successor. So by Netanyahu kind of calling their bluff and calling a leadership um, campaign, most of them, not all of them, but most of them will probably be, be de-incentivized to run against Netanyahu. The only person that may do so is Yuli Edelstein, um, who seems to have his own, his own standing. He has his own narrative. He's obviously been, uh, been Speaker of the House for, 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 for several years. He's a former prisoner of Zion, uh, refusenik from, uh, from Russia, so has a, his own personal story. Um, and just incidentally, because this, this shouldn't be relevant, but it is, he's also, since his second marriage, um, independently wealthy as well. So he's able to kind of to, to fund his own, his own campaign and can afford to basically crudely, to, he can afford to lose. Um, because that's kind of the anticipated that whoever runs against Netanyahu, um, uh, Bibi is still exceptionally popular within the, the grassroots of the party. So just like in uh, 2019, when Gidon Saar stood against him, it would we um, one one could guess similar proportions of around seventy percent of the party of the grassroots are still with him. Um, obviously, other pretenders to the throne, people like it's um, um, Israel Katz um, near Barkat prominently. Um, Several comments uh, in the last days say that the main task of Naftali Bennett will be to to keep the coalition alive. Uh, uh, most of uh, his uh, function will be to to keep this uh, government uh, and uh, avoid uh, it to fall. Uh, what's your take on this? I mean, I think listen, I think that's that's right. Broadly speaking, that he will have to invest the uh, the appropriate kind of political tools in order to keep people satisfied, to keep a dialogue with, with, all his, with all his ministers and make sure that because when you have such a slender majority of 60 or 61, as, they, as, as, as the, the United Arab List have assured, the one member that didn't vote for the government on Sunday is still part of the coalition. So they have, at least theoretically on paper, 61, um, which they're going to need the full 61 to pass the budget in the next uh, three, or four, three or four months. There's no doubt it's a, it's a huge effort, although I will say having to, to bring down the government is, is, more, is now more complicated because they've passed what's called a, you need a basically a constructive uh, uh, vote of confidence where you can't just dismiss the, uh, 
the, the, the government with a simple majority, but you need a constructive majority to, to back someone else as well. Um, so that's seen as a, as, as a, as a more of a difficult uh, threshold to reach in order to bring this, uh, this government down. However, not impossible. But I think so. I think beyond, but beyond survival, um, as I mentioned in my opening, there are a whole range of issues that have been neglected on the on the socioeconomic front um, that the that this government will have to prove kind of tangible results that it's no it's no good kind of surviving for the sake of surviving. But they need to they need to uh, to advance the uh, the policies that they've said they would, and they need to kind of to bring about uh, those those successes across a whole range of. Uh, of different areas. Thanks, Rich. I have a couple of questions here about RAM, Mansour Abbas and the government, particularly around if and when a security crisis is triggered. Um, will they be able to maintain their support for the government? Um, and you know, how would how would the coalition react if there is a security crisis and, and RAM, for example, pulls its its votes or support? Well, I mean, I think in in uh, in in crude in crude terms. If we were, if if Israel was to face another security crisis, I suppose similar, just for example, similar to what we had um, a month ago with the uh, uh, confrontations in uh, in Gaza, as as a general rule, going by historical precedent, one expects the opposition to kind of to give tacit support to a government when when it when the country is is at war, and I think that that's the uh, I think I think kind of still overwhelming. Uh, an overwhelming consensus. It would be inc incredibly um, disturbing, but also fascinating to see the leader of the opposition, Netanyahu, maneuver any other way um, if Israel was if Israel was at war um, and and required their support. So I don't think the the reliance on Ram. It's kind of that's more of a of a, of a fictional theoretical case. Um, and and so I don't I don't see it as a problem. I think the country would remain kind of unified during any any military campaign. Um, perhaps now's a good time to kind of get your thoughts on what's happening in Jerusalem the next kind of, or as we speak, there's obviously a march for flags, which happens every year, but this year also it's delayed because of the conflict in Gaza. Perhaps you can just explain kind of what's happening, why the police have allowed us to go ahead. Sure. Well, I should be very cautious about this because, as you say, it's kind of meant to be starting uh, in, the next, uh, in the next 15, 20 minutes. So, so what I say may not be relevant in, a, in an hour's time. Um, I mean, bottom line, this is kind of one of those one of those classic uh, examples of kind of the the internal dilemmas within Israel. Um, on one level, I mean, I, I try and be as kind of paint a balanced picture as possible. On one level, you know, what should be more obvious um, than 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 a group of of, uh, of Israeli civilians or any civilians wanting to demonstrate their loyalty and affinity to the flag? In their capital city than to organize a march. Um, obviously that's missing the elephant in the room that this is not just every any other city this is an incredibly um, even though the government presents it's a united city this is a this is a split city and the provocation of going through Damascus gate and through East Jerusalem has obviously political overtones um, as completely associated with the with, with the Israeli right. Um, so that's kind of the, the balance of how it's viewed here of kind of like it should be obvious they should be allowed to demonstrate uh, um, the importance. I mean, if the Zionist project means anything, then it means kind of displaying Jewish sovereignty in the in the capital city. It's uh, as they say, it's kind of it's, it's obvious. But again, it misses the point that this is deeply provocative. Um, coupled on that, you have the Hamas 
threats that, again, we saw just um, just as we discussed uh, last month, how they were effectively able to galvanize the, the, the imagery and the symbolism of Jerusalem for their own cause and to threaten rockets. Now you have the, uh, the threat of Hamas. It almost boxes the Israeli government into a corner, both the, the outgoing government and the current government, because they can't now be seen, and especially I think this is for the new government, cannot be seen to cancel a rally um, just because of Hamas threats. Where does, that, where, do, where does that end? If Hamas continue to threaten anything else, that's not a very healthy precedent for a new, a new government to, uh, to go forward. So instead, they've come up with a, with a compromise, which actually was developed already at the end of last week in consultation with the, uh, mostly the police and the, and the Shin Bet security service. And since yesterday, we've got a new um, Minister of Public Security, um, Omer Barlev, um, from the Labour Party who has reviewed these plans. He's basically accepted that, again, giving in to Hamas is not the, uh, is not the messaging that any new government wants to, uh, wants to broadcast. And so that the route of the march has been revised. There will be kind of a symbolic uh, um, dancing and clapping, singing celebration just outside Damascus Gate before they are moved on and, uh, and circumvented round the other way to the, towards the west of the, uh, of the old city to Jaffa Gate, if people have their orientation, and from the Jaffa Gate through to... Uh, through down down to the to the Western Wall, um, so that's that's the uh, that's the compromise in place. Uh, there's no doubt that the Israeli security establishment have backed that decision. They also don't want to uh, to surrender to, to Hamas uh, diktats. Although there is a heightened level of alert, um, there may well be. I think they're the security on the ground that they I would be confident there won't be any violence necessarily in Jerusalem because of the heavy police presence. There may be some some confrontations in the West Bank across usual points of, uh, of friction, which are familiar to, uh, to the security establishment. And then the question is of what Hamas does in Gaza. I've seen in the last hour reports um, of people protesting by the fence, um, seem to be making a lot of noise without any actual uh, violent activity, although the risk of kind of uh, the renewal of uh, um, incendiary balloons that starts fires on the Israeli side is kind of a, a perpetual uh, risk. And, and is the risk of, uh, of, uh, of rocket fire, that it's not, it's not impossible that they will, they will send a rocket or two um, if they feel emboldened enough. Again, this is a very, it's a fascinating moment for all of us to watch, to see exactly how, how much of it is Hamas rhetoric on how much they will go through. Will they suffice with kind of screaming and shouting on the border and, and nothing else? Or will they, will they shoot a rocket? Will they shock it towards just the land in an open area in, uh, in the, the fields of Eshkol, or will they fire to a population center? Or will they fire further to Ashkelon or Tel Aviv or Jerusalem? All these things are calibrated. And I think they will, having said that, to slightly contradict myself, the IDF made a point after the, their, their recommendations and conclusions from, from the last operation, that even one rocket that is fired into open fields will, will elicit a disproportionately harsh response from the IDF. And again, but illicitly, just to, to kind of to unpack some of that language, there is still a different response from a rocket, one rocket in open area to one in civilian areas, to more than one, to a barrage, etc. So all of this, you know, hopefully will remain quiet, but we'll all be watching to see what happens over the next uh, over the next few hours. And then the government can hopefully uh, pass that test quietly and move on to the next challenge. I have another question here. It's regarding the government's kind of policy or stance in terms of the West Bank going forward now. I'm going to read the question verbatim just so that I don't, you know, diminish any of the aspects. Um, one aspect of Israeli politics that concerns the more moderate diaspora 
is the seemingly continuous annexing or seizure of, of the land for Israeli settlements. Is this going to be altered by the new government? So th listen, the Palestinian arena, we're going to have to wait and see. There's no doubt that it's one of those areas, I said, that it will not be the priority for this government to initiate any policy, primarily because it is, it is so divided. I mean, even amongst the two principles of Lapid and Bennett have a, have a different view, perhaps, of, of where they see the Palestinians. As we've written in our BICOM analysis, that we don't expect kind of extreme moves either way. We don't expect there to be any more annexation. And at the same time, we don't expect them to be a substantial peace process towards a, uh, a, a final uh, um, end of claims and, the final, and final settlement. Where I think it'll be interesting is in the middle ground. And again, we can hear that Pitt has spoken about it recently on two or three occasions. Um, and I think even Bennett is within this, uh, this, this worldview as well, that there's a lot that can be done in between those, those, those end game approaches, which can still improve the lives of the, of the citizens. And that's primarily talking about Palestinian population. There are a range of kind of, uh, of economic projects that can, be, that can be developed. There have been ideas in the past of more shared uh, joint economic zones of which settlers and Palestinians can provide employment and can, can work together. Um, there's a very good model in, uh, in, in Balkan, for example, that is based on that model and that could be replicated around other places as well. So that's going to be more likely the, uh, the, the, line, of, uh, the line of traffic, that, uh, that there will be an, an openness to engage and, and, uh, and improve things kind of bottom up. The other big question mark, of course, is where the is where the Biden administration wants to take this. Um, the general uh, is that not so. Um, this is not one of their priority areas. Although, as we saw as a result of the fighting in Gaza last month, the U.S. were um, were drawn into it uh, despite themselves. And now that they've been drawn in, it's uh, it, there's certainly a possibility that they will start to also to lay out their own. Uh, um, guidelines, boundaries, kind of expectations, uh, etc. So we'll need to wait and see and take a lead of what uh, of what Biden and his administration say. But certainly, I think, like in everything else, the tone will change and that there will be far more of an openness to engage, um, especially on kind of the non-political issues and kind of improve the improve the the uh, the case for the Palestinians on an economic front. One of the alarming aspects of the the recent conflict. And the reporting that we saw here uh, in England was the um, uh, the disruption between um, the Israeli Arab community and the Jewish communities in places like uh, Jaffa and so on. And and to what extent is that now uh, less of an issue? And um, the the appointment or the election of this this new government uh, likely to have a positive impact on um, on on keeping those um, those potential. I mean, really significant tensions under control. So I'd, I'd like to give a, an optimistic answer on two fronts. Um, first of all, when we're, in the, when we're in the moment of those violent exchanges, like, like in everything when, when Israel is engaged in, uh, in kinetic activity, you judge these things by the, by the hours and then only afterwards by days and weeks. So we're now thankfully in that days and weeks period where every, every distance we can put ourselves between that and the, uh, and the violence only for the better. Um, my optimistic answer is that I want to say that the, the, the line of travel is absolutely towards integration, is towards what we've discussed already about the new, the new government's uh, um, uh, openness and engagement with the Israeli Arab population, and that the line of travel, the trajectory is positive, that they want to move 
into the in, into that area, and that those those young um, frustrated young men that took part in the in the violent uh, rioting and and worse um, are the exception that that proves the rule, and that's not where but not where the majority is. Um, only time will tell. Time will tell. Um, the kind of the, the as I've said, the, the the amount of distance you can put between between that event and the future, the better. The the more investment that there is in uh, in in both the Arab communities through their membership of this government, but also non-governmental projects that work on the, the space of coexistence and and dialogue groups, etc. All of that for the for the good, and one hopes that uh, that we won't see the uh, the bursting of, of of such violence again. Again, I want to connect that to to the Hamas agenda, just like we're talking today, that Hamas want to uh, amplify their voice from Gaza and to and to and, and to have a say in matters in Jerusalem, and just like that, it will be met, met met by the new government with a very clear messaging that that's unacceptable. So you will see that repeated messaging if Hamas try that with the Israeli Arab community to push back in one voice against that and to reinforce the messages of uh, of coexistence and integration. Uh, do you see Jewish people being allowed to worship and pray on Temple Mount now? Now we've got this new government. It's funny, you know. I mean, for all of uh, for all of Netanyahu's uh, movements that some would say kind of towards the right, um, he was always very clear to uphold the status quo um, and not to allow not to allow uh, Jews uh, to pray on the Temple Mount. Just as background for people that may may not be aware, the status quo was established after Israel. Um, took over the old city in 1967. They immediately handed back autonomous control to the Waqf, to the Islamic uh, um, committee there that is responsible for the Temple Mount. And at the time it was very convenient because Orthodox uh, Halakhic Judaism said that they were, that, that the place was, uh, the, the people here are un, 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 uh, impure and therefore not allowed to ascend to the Temple Mount where you could be treading on areas where the, where the temple stood. So for 2000 and years, Judaism, conventional mainstream Orthodox Judaism said you prayed at the Western Wall and no closer. Only in the last few years have you got the advent of kind of modern um, religious Zionists that want to kind of, I say, if you're serious about Zionism, then you need to, uh, you need to, to, to extend that for control over Jewish sovereignty and include prayer on the Mount. But as I said, Netanyahu has always pushed up against that because of the, the volatility of that issue. And I don't expect that to change with this current government. How long will this government last before another general election? What's the next kind of realistic kind of thing which government needs full consensus before? Um, I'm thinking state budget might be the, one of the main issues yeah. where, you know, the, a, kind of a key point in the next couple of months. So this, this, is the, this is the million dollar question where no one knows how long it's going to last. They've got, according to the coalition guidelines, 145 days starting, I suppose, from yesterday to pass the budget. That's kind of a really important uh, uh, marker on the road. Um, bottom line is, I don't think people have much faith that this government can last too long. But after the political volatility that we've had, even a government that lasts a couple of years would be a vast improvement. So first of all, pass a budget that's been missing for two years. And then kind of each coalition partner itself needs to provide the tools of success to present to their own electorate next time round. So as long as the government collectively is functioning and is able to produce successes, theoretically, there's no reason why they need to go to election. They have all the, the they have the power again, as I said, that Bennett and Lapid have been very 
smart in giving out the uh, cabinet portfolios to people with the requisite skill set. So the vast majority, if not all the ministers, find themselves in a minister ministerial portfolio where they are passionate about and where they have proven experience and credibility on that subject. So that would suggest longevity that they'd all want to remain there. Um, however, and again, this also fits into the timelines, perhaps what happens on the other side as well, vis-a-vis -vis Netanyahu, um, there may be a point where each individual faction sees it's in their interest to pull apart this government and to go back to new elections. Um, will will, um, will uh, Lapid see through his dream um, to kind of to be prime minister in August 2022? Well, we will only have to wait and see. We, we really don't know. But for Lapid's point of view, it's kind of win-win either way. Because on one level, he's been widely and, and uh, appropriately credited with the formation of this government of putting his own ego aside to not be prime minister first and to anoint uh, anoint uh, Lapid uh, uh, Bennett in this uh, in this role. Um, that at the same time, if it falls apart, then he can kind of hold his hand up and say that, that he tried, he worked genuinely in the national interest. And then he's largely to kind of to be whoever runs against him from the right, if we can imagine a, a return to more conventional Israeli politics, um, that he'll be obviously one of the front runners and to then be a potential candidate as prime minister without this convoluted alternate arrangement. Um, so I think, I mean, without being with being cautiously optimistic kind of on day on day two that this government, there are lots of lots of reasons why this government could fall apart very quickly but one needs to hope that the fabric which has kind of brought them together at least stays uh, at least stays true and, uh, and 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 loyal to that idea hopefully for for at least a year i hear you um i have a good question here about the makeup of the security cabinet is it as diverse as the coalition more or less um the coalition the the, the um the, the security cabinet is also based on a parity issue. There are 12 members of the security cabinet. There is There are some portfolios, for example, like uh, obviously prime minister, defense minister, internal security, justice, which are kind of have standing positions. So they kind of automatically have a place in the security cabinet. And there are others which are the discretion of Lapid and Bennett that have basically brought them in to be, to be representative. As it happens, on this occasion that there is a, a larger, because just by dint of the fact that Lapid's, sorry, that Bennett's part of his half of the cabinet are smaller, he has three members and uh, and, and uh, New Hope, um, Gidon Saar's party also have three members. Um, Lapid is the only member of the Eshatid. Um, um, Gantz is defense minister, the only member of Blue and White. Um, and and then you have two members of, uh, of Labour, um, and then one from Meretz and one from Beitenu. Um, again, I should emphasize that why Mansour Abbas, this is interesting, important, A, does not qualify to be part of the security cabinet, it's from his own volition that he is only a deputy minister and he's using the same precedent that the ultra-Orthodox also didn't want to imbue too much justification onto a Zionist government. So just as the ultra-Orthodox also symbolically served as part of a government as deputy minister, minister, ministerships, similarly, Abbas is using that same precedent to be part of this government, but not fully um, responsible, for, certainly within the, the security cabinet. So you have parity between, between Lapid and Bennett and a range of all, basically all the other party leaders, um, plus a couple of extras on each side. Right, um, just a few more questions and we can wrap up. One here is, will Shaz and I suppose any other kind of um, party in opposition, will they be pragmatic and support this government? 
no. <laughs> um, they, so far, it appears no. I mean, we've seen over the last week some really fiery rhetoric from both the Shas leader and uh, and and uh, the uh, Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox as well. Um, really, kind of seems to at least at this stage to be cutting themselves out. I mean, well, there was one in, there was one amusing comment commentary within the Israeli media that says, "What are they more upset about being cut out of the government or or kind of or not being able to to kind of to find a path back into it and being so wedded to Netanyahu and the opposition bloc?" Um, certainly, as it appears right now, that they, they they have shown no signs to to join. Although, again, to give credit to Lapid and Bennett, they have made every reassurance over the head of the uh, of the ultra leadership. To the Israeli Arab, the, to the ultra Orthodox public, to try and reassure them that there is no going to be no major changes to the status quo agreement when it comes to religion and state. That there is no kind of there is no existential threat against the uh, the, the the lives of uh, of yeshiva students and the the way of life um, for the ultra Orthodox. Um, I have to say that from what I've seen, the ultra Orthodox media is taking a particularly unhelpful line, kind of stoking the violence and uh, not violence, sorry, I should be more careful, Stoke, stoking the, the aggression and the, uh, the antagonism towards, um, towards this new government. Um, and that's, by the way, and that seems to be in the mainstream um, ultra-Orthodox media. There are other Israeli, Israeli uh, ultra-Orthodox commentators who are giving a different line and explaining, you know, that the ultra-Orthodox politicians are failing and failing their own public by not showing more pragmatism. Um, I think it's too early to say whether they will eventually join. Um, but uh, but it certainly doesn't look likely. Great. And, and last question. Um, I've left this to last because it's not really a, a policy or politics question, but it might be useful for our audience. Granted, you, I know you don't work in government, but can you clarify the situation of entry to Israel from the UK? Coming oh, I wish I, I wish I could give a, a, a good answer today. You might have to ask another question just to end on a on a more convincing note. Um, <laughs> it's it's really no. I my, my understanding is this that if you've had if you've had both of your jabs and you've waited waited the uh, the required two week period, um, then yes, you should be you, you should be able to come in. Um, bottom bottom line, um, I don't know from what, if that's from today or when that when that starts. I would encourage people to check with the uh, the consular affairs um, and, and and try and get the, cl the the clarity there. But I think you know within the dynamic of of the situation in the UK, this is a this is a moving situation, obviously for for kids, uh, those of us that have, have young children that haven't been vaccinated, then that seems to be very difficult. And I'm not aware of the details of how you how you get around that to bring to bring kids into the country at the moment.